And if you ignore my reasonable plea, that's just fine by me. Cause all the media's seen, the cause and reason for leaks is more than freedom of speech. It's also people's belief that we all need to be brief. In order to keep all the peace, we ought to police the police. And that takes much more than just a formal PR release. So all in all you see, we speak what we seek. And we just see what we speak. It's the truth that's keeping us free. Hello, and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. I wanted to start off again by thanking people for all the feedback that they've shared recently, uh, especially on potential new topics for discussion. Um, there have been some really good ideas, and we're going to, going to try to explore many of them. Um, we've got a pretty big list of topics already, which is great, because when we started this, I was initially a little bit worried that we'd run out of topics to discuss after a dozen or so episodes. Thankfully, it looks like that's not happening just yet. Uh, from the outside, in fact, many people seem to think that being a media property, the biggest challenge that you face is how do you find enough content to write about or talk about or whatever. This is why PR people are constantly pitching stories, pretending that they're helping you find a story. Or why people give a sarcastic slow news day comment on stories that they don't think are worth covering. The fact is that there are really no slow news days. There is always more stuff to cover. Instead, the real challenge for online media companies these days may be keeping the lights on. In early March, the popular tech news site GigaOM suddenly shut down with absolutely no warning whatsoever, taking almost everyone by surprise. In fact, I had done an interview with, GigaOM, with a GigaOM reporter just two hours before the site announced that it was shutting down and everyone was fired. More recently, a popular San Francisco news and culture site called The Bold Italic announced that it was shutting down as well. The site, which was owned by media giant Gannett, though that fact was kept pretty quiet, was well known in the San Francisco Bay Area for some really great and interesting stories, but now it's gone too. In the postmortems for GigaOM, it appeared that the ambitions of the site just didn't match up to the revenue. Many people blame the fact that the site had raised nearly $25 million from venture capital firms, but it's pretty rare for a VC-funded company to just flat out disappear like that. Usually they get sold off in some sort of fire sale, which everyone dresses up to look like a successful exit. Instead, in this case, it appears that it may be the many millions in debt that GigaOM took in addition to the venture capital. After all, the shutdown was precipitated by the inability to pay the interest on the debt and the creditors taking control over the assets. It's not quite clear what took down the bold italic at this point, but it seems likely that Gannett just couldn't justify the revenue for the cost, or rather, the cost for the revenue, whichever way that might go. <laughs> uh, both of these highlight the basic truism about online media that the business model is extremely difficult. For all the talk we hear about musicians complaining about their revenue dropping off a cliff, if you look at the price paid for display advertising, it has decreased even more. Uh, where you used to be able to see 40 or $50 per thousand view prices for advertising, people are now happy to get $1 or $2. It's been a real bloodbath in the ad market. Combine that with the new normal in traffic created by big mega sites like BuzzFeed, which now say that you need massive scale and traffic to even get into ad deals, suggests that we need a new way of thinking about media business models. There are certainly some small niche sites like TechDirt, obviously, and other ones like Ben Thompson's Stratechery, 
but is there a real business model for the middle ground of media sites today? Uh, here to discuss that, again, the Tech Turt podcast crew of Dennis Yang and Hirsch Reddy. Hey, guys. Hello. Hey. So, uh, can, can media properties survive online? I mean, I think that's, that's, a, that's a very good question. I mean, traditionally, the business model for, for media has always been advertising. Yeah, right? for the yeah. most part. I mean, right. So, I mean, there, there are always different angles with which to, to make money. Um, I mean, like subscription is, is another, another, another angle, of course. Um, yeah. and I know TechTart, you know, we've definitely explored other ways to, to keep it a viable business. Yes. Right. And um, it's always been, I mean, and it's always been a variety and it's always been changing. Right. But traditionally the point that you're making is true. Is traditionally most media properties made money by one of two things, which was, advertising and that was the majority of it or subscription right. and it was a very small number that could actually survive based on subscription revenue oftentimes the subscription revenue for uh, paper-based publications really covered the cost of printing and maybe distribution but not exactly not you know the rest of the actual and I, and I think that I mean predominantly I mean I, when I was back at CNET like the advertising business model as it applies to at least media sites call it, you know, look at back in kind of the late 90s, early 2000s, was very similar to the print publication advertising approach, which was aggregate a specific targeted audience and sell advertisers to the people that were looking at your your paper book. Right. Um, and I think what I, I mean, this is this is just uh, you know speculating on my part, but what online has actually enabled is the aggregation of the target audiences, irrespective of what people are actually looking at. Right, um, right. And, and so, I mean, part of my argument has always been that the traditional news business, by which I generally mean, you know, local newspapers, right, sure. which is, the, you know, the one that you think of most if you go back, you know, 60, 70 years or mm -hmm. something, um, that they always thought that they were in the news business and the reality is that they were in the community business, right? And right. they would bring together a community and they would basically be collecting that community's attention, and then they would be selling that attention to advertisers. Right. And, and, and that's why classified ads were right. such a large part of... That was everything, right? Yeah, I mean, the, the newspaper, newspaper business was really the classified ads business. Yeah. And the internet broke that apart in a whole number of ways, in large part because, you know, at that time, you know, those newspapers were sort of the only community that you could you know, you could build in that way. Whereas now with the internet, you can build all different kinds of communities and not just around local, which is what the local newspapers were, but around particular interests, um, certainly, you know, regional stuff, but also a whole, you know, everything, right? I mean, there's communities for almost everything. And so it's, it's much more fragmented you, and you have these communities that don't necessarily uh, need to be connected to news and journalism. Mm -hmm. And... And so, you know, so, so almost everything about the equation that everyone was used to for funding media has changed. Right. But, but, I, but I think, you know, in, when you're buying advertising, you're typically saying something like, hey, I'm looking to reach, you know, women from the age of 30 to 40 who live in an urban area. Right? Yeah. And traditionally, you would go to your magazine or newspaper publishers and be like, hey, you know, what... What publications do you have that reach this audience? Mm -hmm. The equation has now changed where, you know, with, with Facebook and Google, you're, allowed, you're basically able to target that exact demographic without 
specifically targeting publications, meaning what that, what that allows you to do is it allows large, like really large um, kind of broad spectrum interest sites like a BuzzFeed mm-hmm. um, to be able to monetize their very specific targeted audiences. Um, I mean, one of the things that we saw at CNET was we always, this is, you know, I was there in the early 2000s. Um, there was always basically a, a, a kind of a push and pull between the sites with very large untargeted um, audiences like uh, Download.com and GameSpot mm-hmm. and very small specific, you know, audiences like a News.com. Um, and it was always like, how do we monetize these sites with huge number of, m- numbers of page views, but adver- like we don't have enough advertisers for those numbers of page views? And then News.com is like, how do we get more inventory? Because um, t- we have advertisers willing to pay $40, $50, $60 CPMs for this very awesome audience. And what kind of essentially online advertising has allowed you to do is to reach the scale mm-hmm. of the audience and the targeting, right? But what that does is it kind of, reduces the CPM, it increases the CPMs on your, on your large media properties, but it decreases the CPMs right. and on, for, your, on your just niche publications. For people who don't know what CPM is, oh, yeah. it's just the, the cost per thousand views. Right. So it's like the, the cost, basically call it your cost of advertising. Right. Um, and, the, and the higher, obviously, your CPMs, um, the more effective you can make money from it, especially if you're a small a smaller publication. So Right. You know, and, and historically, I mean, there were certainly stories of very targeted you know, uh, publications online, they were able to command like $100 CPMs for, th- for, for advertisements, which is, is an insane number for a variety of reasons. Um, and today, I mean, you have nothing even right. remotely close to that. Well, you know, one of the complications, I think, is, is it's really the sort of the inventory question, right? So as Dennis was saying, they used to be very small targeted sites for yep. very small targeted exclusive audiences. And the problem is, is, you know, there was this assumption before, well, not really an assumption, but it was kind of built into the structure of the market where this very highly educated, um, you know, high salary sort of audience that I'm trying to reach um, I can't find it on the lolcats videos or this other sort of lowbrow stuff because they're right. just diluted amongst the millions of other people. But now with all the intelligence that people are gathering on those viewers, like Dennis said, you can target that very high value audience on the lolcat videos. <laughs> right. But the thing is the lolcat videos cost nothing to make. Yeah. And so if you're trying to get their eyeballs, you don't really care if those eyeballs came via an economist article or whether they came right. from the lolcat videos. And so that's a problem. So here's the thing that I, I really think that like what news organizations organizations need to do is almost change sort of the formula of how they do the advertising or the presentation such that the attention that people are paying when they're reading that high quality content is materially a different sort of attention, right? Like, or, or, or brings a particular media property or a particular brand a, a different kind of a halo, right? Because like, let's, say, let's say you're trying to sell a BMW mm-hmm. and the exact same guy you can track him with these cookies, and you know he, 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 he can see the BMW ad on a, let's say, video of a guy falling down on a skateboard, or he can see it on this um, study that The Economist is doing on, say, the European debt crisis or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. What The Economist really needs to do is be able to say, that exact same eyeball for that exact same period of time is more valuable if the brand is presented on e-commerce. Because if they can't do that, but, then essentially, why would they, I mean, if the, if the eyeball, if the high quality eyeball means is exactly the same monetizability on either one, then it, they can't win, right? I think, no, they are. You are able to command a higher CPM yeah. on, a, on a focused publication. Just not nearly as high. Yeah, it, it's how do they the, justify the, the right pressure? Now? The it's, pressure, the downward pressure yeah. on the on the pricing has gone down. 
tremendously. And yeah. part of it is just, I mean, it's a supply and demand thing, right? I mean, the supply is huge. Yeah. And... And you have much better targeting, and so and and it's and, you have and all this sort of right? real time real time bidding, which which basically yes. you know gives it to the to, you know whoever will fill it at the cheapest, effectively. Yeah, but if I'm BMW, mm-hmm. um, so, do, you th- so do you think you, materially, if you, if I know for a fact that here's yeah. an individual uniquely tied to this device, right, yeah. that we know is a rich guy, he's in the market for BMW, probably you might even know that much. Do you care if the ad reaches him over YouTube or if it comes to him, um, you know, on The Economist directly? Yeah, like, I, I, you, you do care you... and you will pay a premium for it, yeah. but not, not a very that? large premium because you know that there's an association. There's a value with the association. And, mm. and, so, and I think that's absolutely true, but, but it's the level of premium that you can get has seriously right. gone down. So, so let, me, let me take this conversation. We could, yeah. I mean, we could spend you know, the entire time of this podcast talking about the advertising business, but I actually don't think that's that interesting, yeah. frankly. Right? Yeah. And so let's take this beyond that and, and start to think about you know, what other business models are there for online media that get beyond advertising? Because we've become so infatuated with this idea that everything has to be advertising-based. Um, and then the alternative being, you know, you go back to the other alternative which they have, which is yeah. everyone says subscriptions, which, you know, in the online world is paywalls. And I don't think that's a particularly good business model either. And in fact, we've seen, for the most part, paywalls have not survived. Yeah. And in the few cases where they've done okay, they tend to be, you know, what I like to refer to as the emperor's new paywall, right? And that there are always ways around it. The New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, you can always figure out a way around it you know, either by clearing your cookies or doing a Google search. Right. Um, and so those are, people are really sort of paying just for the convenience factor of not having to do that um, or because, you know, because they don't know any better. Yeah, and if you if you look at the price of those paywalls, like New York Times is, what, 99 cents now for I don't even know. a month? I mean, and essentially it's... And that's just the introductory price. Yeah, I mean, and every time I, you know, get around it, I, I'm starting to feel shamed. I'm like, really? Like, is this content not worth a dollar? Um, but do it, you, you really know, feel that? I, don't know. I, I feel a little bit ashamed, right? So <laughs> I subscribe to The Economist, where I can yeah, easily so get around I. it. In fact, I I never actually sign in from my account to read stuff. Yeah. I just would go in incognito. It's just easier. Yeah, <laughs> sitting there and typing. In totally, but but so but, there, but the fact models? is, right? So yeah. so right. So but my argument is, you know, so the paywall kind of maybe works for the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and the Economist. Right. And I, I don't think it's really the paywall though. We I think we just established yeah. that people. It's not really the paywall. It's the fact that people want to pay for the for the publication, right? Like, yep. yeah. it's not, and so. What is that? I mean, that's more like that's patronage the, or something. That's like that. the, yeah. N- the NPR business model. To some extent, right? And, and, but in a, in, a, in a large way, I think certainly the New York Times one is very much the, the kind of NPR yeah. uh, business model. So, so, so then let's, let's take it a step you know, away from that. And so you know, the other one that, the, the one that people talk about today is certainly like crowdfunding, right? Mm-hmm. And so certainly TechTurt, right? I mean, last year we did the uh, crowdfunding campaign through Beacon Reader and we were able to actually raise about $70,000, which yep. is you know, pretty good for, for a crowdfunding campaign. Um, you know, I've seen a lot of other crowdfunding campaigns for media properties that don't really do as well. And, and sometimes you just have you know, you have a chicken and egg problem. I mean, to get a big enough audience to actually support a crowdfunding campaign is pretty difficult. Um, and, you know, especially if you're sub- trying to support more than a single journalist. Um, but even single journalist campaigns are pretty difficult. So, I mean, uh, do we think, is there is there a business model in crowdfunding for journalism? 
I, I think sort of the way we have to think about it is more granular, right? Okay. Like, I, I think, for example, if someone went on, I mean, I, I think one of the reasons the Beacon um, Journal kind of crowdfunding thing that you were successful, you, the reason you were successful is that specifically the topic, right? Like yeah, sure. You, you went after a specific topic. You said, we're going to cover this in the same way we cover the other stuff in that same kind of... A, right. And for, the, for those of you who missed it, it was net neutrality. We said yeah. we were going to cover the net neutrality fight for a year and... That's what the campaign was for, and, and and so I think I think if you do something along those lines, right, where people say like you know um, you, you target a very specific thing, and you and and you say I'm a journalist, I've got this track record, I'm going after this story. Yeah. Who wants to fund? I think that could be successful. I mean, I would pay for that, right? Like, um, even if did you contribute I, to our campaign? Yeah, I did. I did. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and and I got you more people because I shared it on my excellent my, Thank my you. feed, but. Um, but the thing is, is you know, apart from that, like you know, um, you happen to have a larger so kind of a social circle than I think, or not social, I should say, a following, yeah, an sure. online following than most journalists, and so it makes sense for there to be something like a Kickstarter, right? And I guess that's yeah. what the Bacon Reader, Beacon Reader yeah. guys are trying to do, right? Um, but the problem is, I don't, I don't know if most people know that that site exists, yeah. right? And, and it's just a question of that thing getting bigger, or they have, or, or them having their. Um, uh, they're they're like you know what, what was the name of that podcast that just blew up this year and now all Cereal. podcasts serial having yeah. their serial moment right like some very gripping piece yeah. of journalism and they, and they've you know and they've tried and those guys are really interesting and actually you know, what we should do we should invite them on the podcast I'm sure they would love to come on the podcast and talk about it um, and and they're you know one thing that's really cool and kind of because I've worked I worked really closely with them and have stayed in touch with them since then is that you know they, are you talking about the Beacon Reader the Beacon Reader guys mm -hmm. yes. Uh, you know, they're not committed to just one model. I mean, they really see it as they want to build a system that will help fund journalism. And so they're they're really open to experimenting and doing different things. And, you know, they actually got, there was a controversy last year um, when they had done this project with, um, right after our project, actually, with Huffington Post. Um, they teamed up with Huffington Post over getting a reporter to cover Ferguson mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because there were, you know, obviously all the... Um, protests in mm -hmm. Ferguson and, you know, the Michael Brown shooting and all the coverage of that. And, you know, basically the national media parachuted in and we're, we're covering it. And what Huffington Post and Beacon Reader and a few other people realized was that, you know, after two weeks or however long the sort of attention span of the nation was going to be on Ferguson, all those people were going to leave. And then who was going to cover the story really mm -hmm. after that? And certainly, you know, there are some local reporters, but Huffington Post said, you know, we personally we can't afford to have you know every time there's a big story somewhere that we don't have you know a bureau or a reporter mm. stationed we can't afford to just add a new reporter so what if we team up with beacon and crowdfund to get a reporter and they found this woman who was um either a current journalism school student or had recently graduated journalism mm. school was actually working in like retail at the time couldn't mm. find a journalism job they found her and they um you know raised a certain amount of money. I don't remember how much money they raised, mm -hmm. but for her to then basically be a full-time reporter about what mm -hmm. was happening in Ferguson for Huffington Post, which I thought was a really great experiment. Um, and But a lot of people got really angry at it because Huffington Post is a big site. It's owned by AOL, and AOL has a bunch of money, and they're like, well, you you know, why are you doing this? This is... And, and you know, we've seen the same thing with crowdfunding and other things where, like, famous movie stars use Kickstarter, and people are like, oh, no, Kickstarter is supposed to be for mm -hmm. the nobodies. So you have this sort of weird balancing yeah. act. I don't, I don't but, know how sympathetic I am to yeah, that kind I of an outrage. Just, just just, kinda, 
just doesn't make pe- any people sense. just get outraged. For <laughs> well, they, the way they have to think about the value that Huffington Post brings there is the fact that if that woman who who, who currently was not employed as a journalist yeah. was trying to get notice for doing Ferguson journalism, it would be very hard for her to kind of vet herself, you know. Yep. And like Huffington Post does that, and you know, kind of, and, and for that, yeah, reason, and that was you know, that was part of the deal was that they were going to mentor her and they would give her yeah, exactly. you know, professional editor yeah. and everything along those lines. Um, and then, but you know. Just in thinking about other things, you know, another um, site that I think has been really, really interesting, which is sort of a crowdfunding thing, but is different than what what some people think of crowdfunding is uh, Patreon, yep. mm-hmm. right? Which, you know, getting back to this whole idea of patronage, right? I mean, mm-hmm. that's where the name comes from. Mm-hmm. Um, and their whole idea is that you get people to sign up to agree to, um, for every, every time you produce content, that it, the system will automatically, you know, take a dollar from everybody mm-hmm. who agreed to do that. Right. And that's been really interesting. And, and I've spoken to those guys for months since before, you know, basically. Has, has it been successful well, from no, a journalistic standpoint? Are there any journalism there, projects? There are some on there, but they're really still trying to figure that out. You know, yeah. I think it was designed originally for musicians mainly yeah. uh, and filmmakers. Mm-hmm. And that's where it's been most successful because those are, those are the kinds of content where there needs to be, there's a lot of time in between each content release. Whereas, unless you're doing like a big investigative report, right? You know, it's it's tougher to. So, like, you know, I had spoken to them really early on when they were just launching and trying to figure out, like, well, could we test this with Tech Dirt? And we couldn't really come up with something that was unique enough, right? I mean, we could do something where it's like every month pay us money, but then it's just a regular crowdfunding thing. Like, mm-hmm. you know, it needed something that that sort of matched more with that. You know, there needs to be sort of a period of time between each thing that you release. Um, and we didn't quite figure that out. And I don't know if they've quite figured out how to make that work for, for journalism. I mean, I mean, in a sense, isn't like, I mean, I don't know, like, I don't know if this is true or not, but it's like, how do you balance the popular content with maybe like, I don't know, I don't want to call it like more important or impactful or <laughs> sure. Like what, like what is, what is that? What is the, the journalism, the Pulitzer winning journalism? Yeah. And, and this is like, this like, is a big concern, right? Cause yeah. everyone, like, I mean, everyone always jokes about Buzzfeed and I think somewhat unfairly, right? Because yeah. Buzzfeed started out as, mm-hmm. as, you know, just sort of lowest common denominator clickbait kind of yes. content. Um, and so which, everyone just which they sourced from Reddit, by the way. Well, in I mean, a lot of cases they did, right? And they've they've Still. sort of purged and they've purged the site of a lot of that stuff. But you know, since then they've gone on. They've now hired a really strong journalistic team that yeah. that does real news and and does some incredibly impressive investigative. Reporting yeah. though, which so, which sometimes still uses lessons that they they took from absolutely you know, no, their, it, their it, pop journalism, which is actually amusing um, to see. It's yeah, like, and and you know if you go back and people say like, oh, you know, it's ridiculous that serious journalism would be you know put alongside twenty nine you know smiling gifs of cats or something. I don't know whatever yeah. they, they or, do. or those or those grabby headlines. But if it gets look people at what to, this president did next. Yeah, like, but you know I mean, mean BuzzFeed was actually they were never that bad about. It. People assume it was yeah. them, but it was really other really. sites that did that. But but then you know you look at newspapers. And newspapers always had like comics and yes. crossword puzzles mm-hmm. and and horoscopes and all that kind of junk also. And so you yeah. know there's always been a mix in terms of, of media. Um, and where did that mix kind of come from? Was it the you know the altruism of the news organizations saying that you know we we're, we're we're this newspaper and we have to put out the, these hard hitting stories along with the com along with the comics. Well, I mean, even then you you start to look back at the history of news and journalism and you recognize like this idea that that journalism was this you know high minded activity mm-hmm. of 
you know, speaking truth to power and investigating important things and documenting it. Like, that's a pretty modern invention. Yeah. I mean, you know, early journalism was not like that at all. Right. Um, and it, it became a really good business, which is, yeah. you know, when they, were, when they were actually selling papers and the whole yellow journalism, you know, Hearst days. Sure. Th- th- those were big businesses that were yeah know, treading in very kind of well and but that was waters, you know, right? I, I mean but it was interesting too because part of that was the reason that worked was because you know their voices were powerful in terms of making a message that you know could influence the population and that was because you know you had a very limited media market at that point right and you, the, the one thing you can't say about this media market is that it's limited is basically unlimited right i, I think yeah. maybe maybe to some extent i mean there's two things that are conflated right i mean there's the editorial voice in journalism right mm-hmm. um, which you know largely that's what tector does right i mean you guys edit you guys don't go out and necessarily investigate right we're, we're we're mostly an opinion side exactly yeah. and and there is the sort of the the dogged pursuit of facts kind of thing right yep. and and, and the getting the story and those two things, um, you know, certainly the opinion doesn't exist unless there's facts being surfaced and sometimes inconvenient facts. But um, the way that we source those facts, maybe that maybe that has to change a little bit, right? Like, like well, I a, think it already has. But. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so I'm not saying everything has to go to kind of a whistleblower model, but <laughs> but 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 to some extent, you know. The way that 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 newspapers you know maintain various distributed bureaus and things like that, maybe that needs to change and become more like kind of like when a story breaks on Reddit and someone says, mm-hmm. "Hey, look at this! I, I'm on the ground. I took these pictures," or or you know, ask me anything about this situation. I'm right here, and then people kind of in real time probe them, and yeah. it's it's kind of the the story kind of surfaces as the story is happening. Well, that's right, I, and no. so I mean, we're, and we're seeing that already. And there's always you know people have always talked about citizen journalism or whatever, mm-hmm. and they kind of you know some people mock that idea, but I think it is it is really important. And and one of the interesting things about that too is that when anyone can sort of be a journalist, right? Then oftentimes you can have the people who are directly involved, and so you you know, and there may be there are certain biases to be aware of there, but you can actually get you know more you know, a, a more complete picture often when, you, you know, people mm-hmm. who are closer to the story, you know, if it's this, the person who was just walking down the street where something happens, they, you know, they saw it happen. It's not somebody coming later to gather the information. I mean, there are risks there too because, you know, they can, you know, especially in the early moments of something big. Well, what I was trying to get at is the fact that, like, you know, one of the roles of the journalist was to have sort of this high ethical standard and to surface kind of, quote-unquote, true facts, right? Sure. And to not let their voice kind of pollute the story. Right. And I think, to some extent, that that particular role is the thing that we can, you know, kind of do in software with crowds, right? That uh-huh. particular role. And and that is one of the most expensive parts of journalism. And And, like, if you look at kind of the editorial side... Uh, the opinion side of journalism, like like say the John Oliver show, right? Mm-hmm. And and they they do a great job of kind of you know servicing and making like these really kind of arcane things in our society to make it more visible with with humor and stuff like that. But recently, the guy actually went and interviewed Snowden himself, right? In in in, in Russia, right? And that was kind of a big deal. But you know, the the point is like if you have these guys that are doing opinion stuff and they're making enough money, they can. Instead of having bureaus that are really expensive, they can basically source stuff initially, and then when needed, kind of tactically go with the big resources, with the John Oliver, and do the on the ground thing when it's necessary to yeah, pursue a and, and, story. Yeah, I mean, and there have always been these big arguments about, like, you know, for the for for lots of newspapers, right? I mean, does it does it make sense for 
yeah. you know, them to have foreign bureaus when they could have local people mm-hmm. reporting there. and Or every paper to have a, right. have a foreign bureau. Right. Does, it, does every newspaper need a, a Moscow bureau or something? Mm-hmm. Um, does every newspaper need a, a White House reporter? Right. You know, and, and that's where you get things like, you know, where they pull, pull resources or you get the Associated Isn't Press. Isn't that what the AP kind of is? Or? The, the, that yeah. was sort of the point of the AP in the early days, which is, right, I mean, to, yeah. to, to sort of pool resources and be able to use the resources of one or another mm-hmm. paper and share it back and forth. And, and so that gets to some of the reporting, and I don't know, you know, I, I, I don't think there are any easier answers to this. I mean, I don't think I know how these things happen. And, and then, I mean, there's, there's been, you know, nonprofits have stepped in. ProPublica has become a really great source of reporting lately. But yeah. I mean, I mean it, it makes me wonder, like, is it, should we step, take one step back and say, you know, is journalism, are we worse off today? Yeah, I don't. I don't think so. There are people who argue differently. I yeah. think. I think we're. You know, it's an amazing time that there's. You know. I mean, it seems like we're getting. You know, not perfect by any means. Sure. But I think information today travels more quickly than ever. Um, stories that are important are being told. Yep. Um, just the the. You get old, called out on your bullshit a lot quicker. Yeah, and and I think the old infrastructure that was in place, maybe was needed before what we have today and that's kind of what we're seeing is kind of these you know these vestigial pieces maybe you know maybe stories are being told and um that's this is what it looks like when we kind of are shaking it out yeah. is, is that is that what's happening i don't know i i, I think it could be i mean uh, that's probably the argument that i would make the yeah. most i mean there are people who disagree and I'm certain, and there are certainly stories that are falling through the cracks. Nobody denies that, but yeah. but I agree that I think a lot of really great stories yeah, are being think, told, I mean, and, and often in really interesting ways. I mean, I think that you can do new and different things, um, you know, by bringing in the original sources and and letting them speak out and tell their own story. Yeah. Um, makes for some some much more interesting journalism today. Um, you know, the question still is, you know, how does how does it get funded if it gets funded at all? You know, some of it is just voluntary. Right. Um, and then there's the echo, the the kind of echo chamber, or yeah. like that kind of argument. Yeah. Where there's I, always been an echo chamber. Yeah, I don't think that's. Be, yeah, I, I mean, it, right. It's something to to pay attention to. I, yeah. I don't buy the argument. I mean, I think uh, you know, I think everyone has always argued. Oh, there's an echo chamber, which usually just means oh, there are popular news sites that I don't like. <laughs> right. Um, you know, I was just thinking, you know, one of the kind of business models we haven't really talked about is is sort of the merchandising model, right? Sure. Where, where, where you, if you have a, I mean, people want to be associated with a certain kind of content, just like they like a particular band. Um, I can see a future in which, you know, people like the serial uh, journalists or, or like, I don't know, the economists for certain people, um, if they develop a particular brand in a particular demographic, then they, they can sell T-shirts and stuff. I mean, it'll probably so, <laughs> it probably sounds really terrible, but but that's, but just think about well, how it, much it, money people only, make selling T-shirts. Yeah, and well, like that. <laughs> it only sounds terrible because that's what people always used to mock. Mm. The business model suggestions that I always used to make <laughs> about about musicians, people would... Uh, because I would always mention T-shirts as one aspect, one small aspect of a larger business model. And people are like, oh, you just think everyone should sell T-shirts. And, you know, hey, TechTurt does sell T-shirts. Right. But, I mean, mm-hmm. events you know, is another business. And, and really which which we, right. we haven't touched on at all. And I think is yeah. a really big one, which is, you know, and, and a lot of successful journalism publications have found events to be a huge um, a huge business model and, and one that... that 
keeps them in business. Yes. Um, and so, I mean, Ted, Ted basically is right. It's kind of a media, media it business absolutely is a funded media by media a very business. expensive event. Right? Yes. So <laughs> insanely expensive. event. Yeah. How, how does, how does that, uh, sort of new media empire vice work. I see them all over the place now, all well, over YouTube. All yeah, over. so, yeah. I mean, they're they're not so new media. I mean, they've been around yeah. for a really long time. And, and to some extent, they're, they are a marketing and ad agency yeah. with a journalism piece tacked on. Hmm. And so... Yeah. I mean, they started off as the book you would get in American Apparel, right? So... <laughs> Is um, that what it was? Yeah, it was a magazine, physical book you get for free. Yeah. Um, that's kind of where they cut their teeth. And I think they're doing some very interesting journalism. They have some in insane video journalism yeah, that I've yeah. seen. I mean, they have a guy like in Afghanistan. He's like with the Taliban. Yeah, I'm like, yeah. who is this guy? How did they get there? I don't even see New York Times stories like no, this. No, no, they've, they've done some. They've done some really great journalism. Yeah. But I mean, it's interesting, and people kind of struggle with it. Uh, that you know, they sort of they real realistically started out as a marketing yeah. and, and an ad agency, like journaltainment. Yeah, and and yet they've done some really serious yeah. journalism at the same time. And so you have that. You know, it's a really interesting mix. And so people look down. I mean, Vice and BuzzFeed are often get sort of yeah. lumped together as things that, that real traditional journalists mm. like to mock. And yet, you know, when you look, they've done some really impressive journalism. And, you yeah. know, and, and, you know, who knows how sustainable it is, but, but they're valued super highly. And they've both been able to raise lots and lots of money. Um, and tell really interesting, impactful stories. Yeah, I think and incredibly cra crazy stuff. Crazy yeah, stuff. yeah, like yeah. on the ground when uh, Ukraine was being invaded, like yeah. right there. And they did, and they like they stuff. they did a whole thing from North Korea, and like everywhere yeah, that nice. like other reporters w won't go, they've been able to go and do some some amazing reporting. And so, but, and they have this real punk rock feel to it, where I can just totally imagine them selling Vice T-shirts and it like selling and, out. And like, they, they do. Yeah. They do. Yeah. Okay. They I haven't seen any everything. Yeah. I mean, it's. I'll get you a T-shirt. And. And so, yeah, so, I mean, they're, they're interesting things. But again, you know, part of their, like both BuzzFeed and Vice have, have really focused on scale, right? I mean, so yeah. they've done this stuff and they've just figured out ways to scale up tremendously. And so, you know, there is still this question about whether or not you can do that without having that kind of scale. Um, and, you know, and that's certainly important to me personally, <laughs> you know, running a site that I don't think we're, we're never going to try and scale up to the size of a BuzzFeed or a, a or a vice, yeah. um, but you know, making but sure you'll be okay with it. Yeah, no, I've, okay. I've, I'm not. I don't think that we should be that kind of. Do yeah. either of you have any notion of kind of what the health is of, like, say, the Wall Street Journal or the Economist or the Economic Times? Like, I'm wondering how these very sober, very non-entertainment, very factual kind of publications are. How are they getting on? Like, are they just are they struggling? Uh, yeah, I mean, most of them won't say. I mean, you know, the Wall Street Journal is a part of, um, you know, part of News Corp, so it's sort of buried in there. I think they're doing okay, um, and partly that's just because you know the Wall Street Journal is just such a tradition, right? And the same with the Economist. Um, they're doing they're doing really well, and there was just um, they were the, one of the guys from there just gave this interview not too long ago in which he was talking about the success of their subscription model, um, which I thought. I disagreed with, and I had written an article on Tector sort of arguing that he was being a bit delusional, which was perhaps not fair to him. Um, Do you want to elaborate more on that? Is it take too yeah, long? Yeah, I mean, we're kind of running out of time, but his argument was that the reason that people pay for The Economist was that they want this um, sense of, uh, I, I think it was finishability, right? So 
What they don't, what he was arguing that what people don't like about the internet is the fact that there's always more. And so, mm-hmm. you know, when you had like an old fashioned newspaper, you could read it till the end. And so the economist strives to be that thing that you can finish and feel like you know everything, that you've been well informed oh, and there you feel. And so his argument was that was the, the, you know, that was the selling point. And my response to that was, I don't think, and, and people disagreed with me very vocally on this, from a, a lot of people disagreed with me on this, was that uh, I don't think the younger generation today, the people who are growing up more digitally native, that they desire that same sense of finishability because they know that everything is out, is out there. And they don't believe, if you give them and say, this is the whole story, they don't believe you and they don't want that. They want to be able to dig deeper and they want to be able to look up other stuff and they want to be able to share things and they want to be able to discuss things. And so I see, like, I definitely agree that there's an older generation and and this is not to just make it all about generations because, you know, whatever. But I think that the growing audience of people who are growing up today, you know, growing up digital that they don't care so much about that idea of finishability. And lots of people disagree with me on that. I, I think in the early 2000s, that was definitely true. And when I think back, I think the guy really had something there. Because I would take The Economist magazine, and it would always be in my bathroom, and I would read it when I was brushing <laughs> my teeth and you know other activities. And that's how I would finish it. And I always finish it just in time for the next one, right? And it, it was a continuous cycle that way. But now, I still have The Economist in my bathroom. I never open them. They just go yeah. straight into the recycling bin and I'm always reading the stories on the iPad and I always get them through Reddit, yeah, right? Or, you know, Hacker News or whatever, one of these like other aggregation sites. And they, oftentimes the stories don't have anything to do with what was published this month. It's like from a few weeks ago. It's like a year ago. It's like they're just randomly linked in. And, and so I don't think he's right about that. And I'm certainly not a young digital native spring chicken, right? Yeah. Like, like I'm, I'm older. Yeah, but um, yeah, I mean, I don't know. People, people were yeah. vehemently disagreeing with me on that. So there are some people who really do value finishability. I just don't know, generation, you know, generationally, if it'll stick or not. I think for my dad, that's true. I mean, he reads the magazines. Yeah, I mean, I think like, that obviously the age of you know getting all of your news from the evening newscast yeah, is kind sure. of past. Um, I, that said, you know, I find myself feeling kind of kind of frantic trying to accumulate the full story about, you know, you can't, I can't read any news story now without essentially digging myself into a rat hole. You know, yeah. Um, yeah, but I like um, that. No, I, I love it. <laughs> but that's how much time, time you have. It's your yeah. job. We got other <laughs> yeah. jobs to do, right? I guess that's true. <laughs> which, and, which is, you know, and I, and I think I was describing this process to my mom where, you know, I think she was like, yeah, you know, if I, just, I read this article, I was like, well, did you dig deeper? And I explained to what, you know, I explained to her what happens in terms of you Googling it and trying to find the other side of a story. And, and she said, she, you know what? She says, that sounds exhausting. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, it is. And, but that's kind of the state. That's, it's, it's great that we have, yeah. like, imagine, you know, 50 years ago when you only had the newspaper, where else are you going to go for yeah. opposite opinions and, and different, sta- different viewpoints and whatnot? And that's kind of where we are. And if we as a society are kind of educating everyone to dig deeper yeah, that, that seems well, like a and, better and that, thing. And, and, and right. so I, I know we've gone over, way over the amount of time that we, yeah. we normally do. So I'm, I'm gonna and off topic and, and somewhat so, off topic, right. but I'm gonna I'm gonna bring it back around and give a final thought, and then you guys can chime in, and then we're gonna close it out. But that leads me to an interesting thought, which is, and, and I've seen this suggested a few times. I think I wrote about it on Tech Track. I can't even remember at this point, but um, you know, I once this idea that you know before when you you know when you did just have newspapers mm-hmm. and you wanted to dig deeper, what did you do? What you actually did was you went to the local pub or the local coffee shop and you discussed it with people. And there was a community that was built around people who would 
you know, sit around and discuss stuff. Right. And to some extent, that is what like social media has become and Twitter and Facebook yeah. where you have or Reddit and Hacker News and things like that, where people gather and discuss the news. And so it's not all about, you know, it's and, not and all about the, other, the, yeah. the solitary pursuit of the other side of the story, but the the discussion that happens after. And that gets back to the point that I made at the beginning about building the community, right? And so where you can build a community that is actually interested in these things and they stick around to discuss it, I think that's really interesting. And I still think that that's where the business models have to focus on. How do you continue to build that community and how do you but make But then, it? I mean, I think that, that leads to the question is once you have a community, how do you make money from that? How do you, what, what is your business? Yeah. Um, we've already gone over yeah. time, and I, and I think that 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 to me is the the question. It's like now that yeah. we've aggregated a community, right? What's the business? So yeah, maybe maybe the, maybe, we'll, maybe we're, I'm leaving with an open ended question. I think I think we are. But uh, Hirsch, any final thoughts from you? Or no. you're yeah, <laughs> you've said your piece on this. All right. Well, uh, this is an interesting discussion. I'm sure we will touch on this topic again because yeah. it's one that where there aren't any easy answers. Uh, and it's one that personally I have to struggle with um, just to keep in business. So <laughs> go, go buy a Tech Dirt t-shirt today. Yeah, please, please go buy a Tech Dirt t-shirt. <laughs> All right. Uh, thanks again, uh, everyone who's listening. And Hirsch and Dennis, thanks for joining me. And uh, we'll be back next week. Some regretful news But it's best that you confess And soon before we end up less than destitute Civilian deaths and executions A routine while billions are spent on weapon producing Do you think you can reduce the terror threat? By